Awesome. Hi, for those of you that I don't know yet, my name is Ty, and I'm a pastoral trainee here. Um, I don't want to take a lot of time uh, messing around, so if you have your Bibles, if you could go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25. I'll give you uh, three seconds to get there. Sweet. Hopefully you're there. If not, it'll be up on the screen, and uh, you can find it as we're going. Starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and willing to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, right now I just thank you for who you are. I thank you for this time together. I pray that... um, as we dive into your word, God, that you would just show us the hope that can only come from you. God, I thank you that you took on humility, bringing on flesh, being born as a baby, so that as we could not seek you, as we could not find you, God, you pursued us. God, I pray that those of us that don't know you today, God, that you'd capture hearts, give us a new heart, God, that desires you and that seeks you. For those of us that do know you, God, I pray that we'd be conformed more into the image of your son. In your name I pray, amen. Um, I kind of want to start with heresy just right out the gate. Um, I have Jaron here, so he's ready to stone me and take me out back if it gets a little out of hand. But um, believe it or not, I wasn't always a Christian. I know, cat's out the bag. That's kind of weird. But um, one of my favorite movies growing up was a Will Ferrell movie called Talladega Nights. Um, and in that movie, um, it's about a guy named Ricky Bobbin. and he races cars and he's doing good. And in one of the beginning scenes, he's sitting with his family for a family dinner and he begins to pray. And when he prays, he begins to pray to sweet baby Jesus and he goes off in some other stuff and his father-in-law gets very upset and he's like, you know, Jesus is an adult. And he's like, I like to picture Jesus as a baby. And they go on all these different ways that they like to picture Jesus. And some of you are wondering what the heck is going on? What is he talking about? Don't worry, there's a point. But In that, as comical as it sounds that they're talking about all different ways that they picture Jesus, so often in our lives, we do the same thing. Maybe we don't voice it, maybe we don't uh, say it or write it, but in our, the way we live our lives or even in our beliefs, we often portray it. The Jews did the same thing at this time. When they were looking for a Messiah, they weren't looking for Jesus. They were looking for a political leader, someone to free them from the oppression of Rome, someone to remind them and the world of how great they were. We're often guilty of this ourselves. We look at Jesus as kind of this magical genie that we exchange good behaviors for um, fulfilled prayer requests or even blessings. But can I tell you, we need to stop doing that. We need to see Christ for who he is and how he revealed himself in his word. Not as a means to make us look or feel great, but as a reminder of our hopelessness and our sinful nature and our hope through him as our Lord and Savior. If you have your notes before you today, my first point is this. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit to save sinners 
from their sins. Twice in this passage, Matthew tells us that this baby was from the Holy Spirit. In other words, he was not from Joseph. Um, he's not from Joseph and God just adds something else, but it says that it stated clearly that this pregnancy did not result from promiscuousness. I got it the first time, first service that took me like 20 times, we're good. Um, The conception was prior to Mary and Joseph coming together. And it is this miraculous act of God which makes him the Christ. We see in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. I think it's important to understand that Jesus um, didn't use Christ as his last name. I don't know if any of you guys are fans of The Office, but there's a scene where Michael gets really upset that someone else is dressed as Santa, and so he proclaims himself dressed as Jesus Christ who heals leopards and flies around. This is not the truth. I just want to make that known. Um, Jesus isn't Jesus Christ like I'm Ty Hayes, but Jesus is Jesus Christ like I'm, I'm Ty the salesman or I'm Ty the husband. It is a title. He is Jesus the Christ, which means that he is God's appointed one. I think it's also important to understand that Christ isn't a curse word, but it's the English form of a Greek title known as Christo, or in the Hebrew, Messiah. It means the anointed one, the chosen one, God's man, handpicked for a special purpose. This baby is God's answer to the world's most significant and fundamental problem. Maybe it would help if I were to describe some of the ways his life changes ours. When God makes Jesus the Messiah, it means that the king with the most claim to glory willingly accepts humility so that the humble can be lifted to heaven. It means that the richest one became poor so that the poor in spirit might share in his riches of his glorious inheritance. It means that he feasted with sinners so that those who, hung, those who are hungry for God would not starve in sin. It means that his heart would not be broken so that he, it means that his heart would be broken so that he could bind the brokenhearted. It means that he was born to die so that we who are dead in sin might live. It means that the exalted Lord serves those who are too weak to help themselves. It means that his body was crushed so that we who are broken by sin could be made whole. It means he would be bruised so that we may be healed. It means that he will be condemned so that the guilty can be declared innocent. It means that he will be abandoned so that those who have left God might be adopted into his love. This baby is the Christ, God's answer to set all things right. In verse 21, we see the importance of this name um, in the many hymns and phrases that we see um, in our songs. The name of Jesus. That name is significant because of what it means. When the angel said, name him Jesus, everyone who knew the Old Testament recognized this as the Greek version of Joshua or Yeshua, and it means Jehovah saves. But please pay special attention so that you do not miss a critical detail here. The angel does not say, you shall call his name Jesus for God will save his people. Other parents named their sons Joshua or Jesus to express their hope that Jehovah God would, give his, uh, would save his people. But the angel says, call his name Jesus because he will save. That is not Mary's faith in God's salvation, like saying God will one day save, but it is God saying um, he's named Jehovah because he is the savior. Jesus saves his people in three ways. From the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. 
First, when Jesus converts someone, he immediately frees them from the, penal- from the penalty due sin. We are no longer condemned. The Bible says that all sin deserve damnation. Because we have disobeyed the perfect law of the infinite and glorious God, Jesus takes that punishment for his people, giving them instead the reward of his obedience. He frees from the penalty of sin. Jesus also saves from the power of sin. Those who truly know him are able now to both see and desire the happiness of holiness. No longer must our hearts be led astray. We have the ability both to love and to seek that which is good. And I know I sound really dry as I, as I read this, and maybe this isn't entertaining, but it's so important that we understand that when we have hope in Jesus, he saves us from ourselves. Third, when Jesus changes a holiday Christian into a true worshiper, um, for those of you that don't know holiday Christian, that's just kind of a term I'm using. It means maybe those of us that only come to church on special occasions like Easter, Christmas, sometimes they're called Christers, but those of us that maybe feel a religious duty but don't have a believing faith. He begins saving from the presence of sin. Those who know God through the work of his Messiah actually begin to sin less. They're not sinless, but they begin to sin less. Not only in outward acts, but by the desires of the heart purified through the presence of God's spirit until we reach heaven and holiness is given. I once had a friend, believe it or not, it's pretty cool. Uh, and she told me that when Jesus saved her, uh, she knew when Jesus saved her because she began to really dislike sinning. I think that's a good insight. We have a hymn that uh, none of us sing because um, it's older and we, I can't even barely pronounce it, but it's called Love, Divine All, Love, Excelling. And it says this, Breathe, O breathe, thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find that, that promised rest. Take away the love of sinning, Alpha and Omega B, end of faith as its beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. A heart truly freed hates sin. Jesus frees God's people completely from the penalty, the power, and even the presence of this great enemy of your soul. Do you know him this way? Do you see this work developing in your life? One of my favorite preachers, John Piper, has a quote that says this, God is a searching and saving God, a God on a mission. He is sending, pursuing, searching, saving. That's the meaning of Advent. We even see this further in Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When I think about um, my sin nature and how, how easy it is to see it, um, especially in this time of Christmas, I don't know about you guys, but I think this season has a tendency to really reveal people's hearts. Um, I work for a phone company uh, called T-Mobile, and I'm going to be really careful because my boss is sitting right in front of me and staring me down, so I'm going to be real careful about what I say, but um, in that, I often see um, people coming into the store and feeling like they need the latest and the greatest phone, the latest and the greatest technology because they think that's what's going to satisfy them. They think maybe um, pleasing their children with the latest and the greatest might satisfy them. They think maybe a relationship they don't have or an item they don't have or being around family is going to satisfy them. And can I tell you, those may feel satisfactory for a moment, but Jesus is the only thing that will eternally, eternally satisfy. In my own life in this season, um, 
for those of you that I don't know, I've been recently married in the last few months. Um, it only took like 100 years of begging, but it worked. And um, it's been kind of crazy, but in this season, I began to really, really see my selfishness. Um, when we have disagreements, I'll just be honest with you, uh, probably more than 75% of the time, it's my fault. <laughs> and um, as I begin to pray and as I begin to have conversation with her and, and we discuss the issues, I begin to more and more realize that it's my selfish nature and my sinfulness poking its head out, making me frustrated because I'm not getting what I want in my selfishness. It's not about thinking what's right for my family or for my wife, but it's me saying, what about me? What about what I want? And that's ugly. It's disgusting. That's what Jesus came to save us from. Do we have any math people in here? Oh, well, that's gross, man. I was like super stoked. I was like, man, no math people. This world is good. Um, <laughs> um, it was interesting. As I was studying, um, it mentions a prophecy about Jesus. As I was studying the prophecy of Jesus, I am not a math guy. Um, can't do math to save my life. I could give a speech without even rehearsing and do fine. But when it comes to math, I was in the same math class, I feel like, from sixth grade to 12th grade, because we went over the same stuff. Can I tell you, I still don't understand it. It was weird. I'm like, once we got past multiplication, I'm like, what are we even talking about? Where, where do letters get in math? I don't understand. Um, but as I was studying the prophecy of Jesus, it began to talk about um, the possibility or lack of possibility of Jesus fulfilling all the, um, all the prophecies given in the Old Testament of the Messiah. And it began to make me interested in other um, statistics of things. And so uh, my father-in-law corrected me because he's really nice after the first service. But um, how many of you guys know that uh, I used to say quintuplets, but it's actually sextuplets? I think so. We're going to go with that. Six kids. Sextuplets. Cool. We're going with sextuplets. Um, so that means that they have six children. If, they, if you um, or someone you know ends up being pregnant with six children... The doctors actually warn you in advance that it's very, very, very unlikely that all six children will be born healthy. It's uh, statistically near impossible, but a few years ago, they actually had a case where someone had eight kids, and they're all born healthy, and it was crazy. They were saying, like, this seems impossible. It's, it's nuts, but when I was looking up the statistics of someone fulfilling the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, it actually is even further near impossible, in fact, they say it would be more likely that those prophecies were written after Jesus did all this, and they're just using Jesus' life as a way of saying, oh, Jesus already did this. Let's say that this is what the Messiah will do. But we actually see in the Old Testament that it was written way before his life. I just found that really crazy that even math and statistics are pointing us to Jesus as the Savior. Um, I'm not like C-3PO from Star Wars, so I can't name those numbers for you, but um, Google can. Look it up. It's good. Um, we also see in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that um, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. If you're taking notes, my second point was this. God foretold and ultimately fulfilled his word through Jesus. I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but I have a ton. Um, sometimes when I talk to um, coworkers or friends or anyone that doesn't believe in Jesus, they often wonder or even complain about the narrow-mindedness of Christianity. Have you guys come across that at all? They say things like, how could one suppose that this is the one and only way to God? What about all those other devoutly religious people in the world? Are there not many paths to God? Have you guys heard that? I want to tell you that the Bible's answer is not just simply no, 
but it's also that God's name is Emmanuel, God with us. We can say in this way, the big claim of Christianity is not simply that Jesus is the only way to God. It is that Jesus is God, making his way down to us. It is not that you must go through Jesus to find the light of God. It is that Jesus is the light. So all who would see God must look to him. It's not as if Jesus was a ladder we climbed to heaven, a ladder which happens to be red. I like red ladders, but you may like green or blue ones. To each his own ladder, to each his own savior. That's not how it works. But instead, the Bible says that Jesus is heaven. So to go to heaven, we must go to Jesus. All who would come to the Father must come to him because he and the Father are one. If we were to say that Jesus is not the only way to God, it'd be ridiculous. It'd be like saying, God is not the only way to God, for he is Emmanuel, God with us. When the promises of God seem powerless to quiet our fears, soothe our grief, or lift our worries, we need to do more than simply hear his promises again. We need to behold the God who gives them. When I go through times of trouble, sometimes I'll just be honest, I don't emotionally feel better when I read scripture. But when I begin to go before God and really understand the God who's making those promises to me, it changes everything. I can tell you a lot of great things, but if I'm not trustworthy, if you can't bank on what I say, it means nothing. But the great thing about scripture is when we see what God promised, we know that God is trustworthy. We can hold him to his promises. It's why my favorite Christmas song isn't even technically considered a Christmas song. I don't know about you guys, but I can't stand Christmas music. It drives me nuts. Um, But we'll just toss that aside. But my favorite Christmas song is a hymn called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And the chorus goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what Christmas is all about. In verse 24 and 25, it answers the question that I alluded to earlier in the message when it says, how can we be changed from a holiday Christian to a true Christian? And that just means how do we change ourselves from someone who comes to church out of religious duty or maybe just something that, um, something that we've grown up with into a real believing relationship in Christ. Matthew, in the last two verses of the section, in chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, um, begins to explain this. These verses don't have the complete answer, but they do hint at what the rest of the New Testament explains. It says, Joseph did as the angel commanded. He named his son Jesus. And in doing so, Joseph placed himself with those who need a savior. And in the end, that separates holiday Christians from true worshipers. The distinction is this. Do we embrace our need for God's saving grace? Do we not come to church out of religious duty or how it makes us feel, but because we understand our need for him? People attend church for many reasons. Some seek nostalgia or the warm feeling of religious comfort or even connection with family. And these reasons aren't bad per se, but they are not the reason that Jesus was born. Jesus was born because you and I need forgiveness. We need release from guilt. We need freedom from passions and desires which enslave us to selfishness and self-seeking pleasures and self-destructive love. We need to be saved from thinking 
that the greatness of God is defined by how much he makes of me, how he makes me feel, what he does for me. And instead realize that the true freedom is finally being able to make much of him. And the first step in that great change is recognizing and accepting our need for him. Realizing this, this life we live isn't about us and our wants and our desires, but our opportunity to know God and to glorify him. A professor named Calvin Miller wrote an interesting article um, that I got to read a few weeks ago entitled Rethinking Suburban Evangelism. And it was on the challenges of taking the gospel to people who don't feel like they need the gospel. In the article, he says this, Suburbia, the push-button Zion of those who have made it and therefore haven't made. There amid the water-sprinkling systems and lava rock landscapes rises the new Eden with little need for God. Paradise found where churches ulcerate themselves trying to sell self-denial to the pampered. Reading that article reminded me of what Jesus said in Revelation three seventeen through 18. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may, be, you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Like I said earlier, um, I work at T-Mobile in the mall, and so even when people don't come into my store, I see them running around the season trying to buy the latest and greatest for everyone that they own, and, or for everyone that they love to own. And that's, that's not a bad thing. It's not bad to want to um, give gifts to people that you care about. I, got, I bought my wife a gift because I've been married three months and I already know that when she says you don't need to get anything, that's a trap. Um, <laughs> just let, if, you, if you're not married, just write that down, guys. It's true. Um, but in, in that, I see so many people looking to satisfy, looking to satisfy their heart through relationships with others or through items that they own. And that's what this is talking about. In America, to be honest, we have it really good. Even those of us that don't have it as good as others have it really good. And it's so easy in that to get lost to our need for Jesus because we live in comfort. When the power, when the power went out for everyone, I just went somewhere where they had power, to be honest. When it's cold, I have five blankets to choose from, even if the heater doesn't work. We have means to fulfill every desire that we want even those that we don't have money to get, sadly. And in that, we can often lose sight of what the true meaning of Christmas is and what our soul truly needs. So we see from that scripture that we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked until God, born as a baby in Bethlehem, comes and saves our lives. When I was um, growing up, my... Um, my mom was, became pregnant with me when she was 16. Um, she lived in Portland, and uh, my father was in his 20s and was in the Navy, and they started dating, and um, when he found out that she was pregnant, he actually took off, and she never saw him again. And so um, because of that, with my mom being pregnant with me, she dropped out of high school, took whatever job she could find. They didn't pay well and would work as much as she could to earn a living for me and later on my sister and my brother and everything. And... Um, Christmas was a really hard season for me. Not, um, not even for the selfish reason of I didn't get the things that I wanted, but for other reasons like, how come 
my friend that's complaining about the presence that his dad got him has a dad and I don't. How can a, a heavenly father love me if my own father can't? And in that, I began to, f- to feel so lost and get so angry because while everyone else was gathered as a family opening gifts, my mom had to work. And if we were lucky, she got off early enough that we could go to Sherry's and have a meal together. And my mom worked really hard to provide the things that I wanted, but all I could do in my selfishness is complain and be angry and lose myself in that. And I know that sounds really dramatic, but it is so easy for us to focus on all the things that we want and we don't have and lose sight of what's really important. The meaning of Christmas is that what is good and precious in your life need never be lost. And what is evil and undesirable in your life can be changed. I want to end with this story. Um, I'm not, like I told you about the Christmas song, I'm just not a Christmas person in general. Um, I don't really like Christmas movies either. You can ask my wife and in-laws. They've been like trying to watch Christmas movies with me every evening after I get off work. And right around 7.30, halfway through the movie, I'm like, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. And they're like, it's 7.30. I'm like, that's how bored I am. That's how terrible these movies are. Um, and so... Um, when I first became a Christian, like six or seven years ago, um, I really started to ask myself questions about like Easter and Christmas. Like, what does this really mean now that I, that I have a believing faith in Jesus? What, what does Christmas really represent? And I'd love to tell you that going over passages of scripture that Jesus spoke to me and I learned, but actually it happened through a cartoon called Charlie Brown. Um, and in, I don't know if any of you guys have seen it or not, but it's like a fifties cartoon. I watch it. It's the only tradition that I have because I made it for myself about five years ago. Every year on Christmas Eve, I watch Charlie Brown Christmas. And in that story, um, Charlie Brown sees all his friends lost to materialism, sees them lost in their own desires and begins to wonder himself to himself, what is Christmas really about? And they, um, because of his problems, one of his friends, Lucy, asks him to direct the play so that he can be around Christmas spirit and it'll cheer him up. And so he begins to direct the play. And through it, he gets frustrated because they're trying to make it trendy. And he's like, this isn't what it's supposed to be. So they tell him that they need a Christmas tree. And he's like, that makes sense. So he goes out looking for a Christmas tree and finds like all these, back then they had glass trees, I guess. It's kind of weird, but like all these fake trees that were bright, colorful, and looked great. And he went and found like the the one real tree that looked terrible and dumpy and he was really excited and he brought it back to the play and all of them ridiculed him and he began to, to, to get frustrated and said, can someone just tell me what Christmas is all about? And his friend Linus said, I can do it, let me tell you. And his friend Linus began to read this passage of scripture in Luke chapter two, verses eight through 14. And it says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign on for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly... Um, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest on on earth, peace among those with whom he has pleased. Can I tell you guys, just like Linus said after that, that's what Christmas is all about. It's not about what we get or don't get or who we get to spend time with or who we don't. It's about God loving us and sending his son 
to come and pursue us like we could never pursue him. And in that, I would encourage you guys as I um, ask this final question to really think through not just today, but through this week as we spend time with family and open gifts and do all those great things to ask yourself this question. Do you see Christ as the perfect gift? Because if we have those material things, to be honest, we'll be over them in a couple of weeks. Um, If we have those relationships that we think are going to satisfy, people are always going to let us down. But if we know Christ, we are eternally satisfied in our soul. So again, do you see Christ as the perfect gift? Let's pray.